You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. There have been a couple of culminating events in the city of Washington DC over the past two weeks. Gatherings of a kind of religious and liturgical nature. A congregation, a holy assembly of people, had spent time preparing for these culminating events. They had dedicated hours and days and months, and some had dedicated nearly a lifetime. Rhythms and rituals of their life that had become so, as we say, second nature. They were used to the rhythms of these events, and they spent time in between the events preparing for the next one by reading, by dwelling upon the sacred texts, by discussing the the next upcoming service in small groups of followers, shopping for the appropriate clothing, preparing their money to be given an offering at the next service. The assembly featured different roles that were being played. Some wore different kinds of uniforms that were displayed. They, They belonged, that showed where they belonged to the ceremony of events, whether they belonged on the stage or coordinating the stage or in the participating congregation surrounding the stage. They showed up dressed for their appropriate clothing, which was coordinated in common colors and patterns and symbols. There was a buzz of excitement in the air, and the whole gathering was unified in their common adoration, their common hope, and their common vision. At these events, there was food and drink served, the same food and drink that was, had been served for as long as anyone could remember. There was ritualistic music and chants and songs that the congregation was well rehearsed in. Many had heard the tunes and words for a lifetime, and it just poured forth from them. There were coordinated lyrics and clapping and standing up and sitting down and raising of hands in a wave-like fashion. There were directions to the assembly on when to get loud and when to sit down. The congregation was oriented towards a common vision. They shared the same excitement when those on the stage succeeded and the same disappointments when there was failure. Many of their lives were so shaped and formed by the rhythm of these events. For some in the assembly, it cost them a lot to get to the event. Others, it didn't seem to cost them much. Some were very aware and excited about what was happening. Others were less invested and less aware of what all the excitement was really even about. Still, they were there from all their various background and stories, and they were being trained and had been trained to love the team, love the events, love those who starred in the events. And at... uh, Two of these recent culminating events in Washington, D.C., the assembly was elated in the fact that a victory had taken place. The congregation that was there, they didn't have anything to do with the victory that had taken place, but at the end they said in a unified voice, we won. And and when they left those culminating events, they weren't just content to leave the victory there. Matter of fact, if they saw anyone else, they'd let them know just what had happened. They said, we won. (laughs) And then they began to prepare over and over again for the next service that would take place, getting ready for the next sermon. (laughs) I am, of course, talking about the culminating events of the victories of the Washington Mystics, the WNBA team of of D.C., for all you unsportsly-like people, for their first ever national title win over the Connecticut Sun. And I am, of course, also speaking of the Washington Nationals, that is D.C.'s baseball team, for those who don't don't know, for their first ever championship win over the St. Louis Cardinals and first trip to the World Series, all right? Christian worship on the Lord's Day is the culminating event of the church. 
it's the heartbeat of the church. And in fact, you can't even talk about the church without talking about worship because worship is the thing that the church does. It's why it remains in existence for over the past 2,000 years, Sunday after Sunday, the church worships. It features a holy assembly of people, a people more or less dedicated through sheer hours and years and lifetimes that have been trained and formed to have a common vision, a common love, common language, common story, common symbols, and a common rejoicing over a common victory won for them. A victory that the congregation didn't have anything to do with, but still at the end of the service they say, we won. <laughs> they claim the victory for their own. Here at the church, there are different roles that are be, being played by those who are on stage or by the participating congregation. There is coordinated music and chants and prayers. Many have heard the words and tunes for a lifetime, and it just pours out of them. They're standing up and sitting down, times to get loud and times to sit down, times to close your eyes and times to raise your hands. There are rhythms of preparations between each service, which involve reviewing what happened at the last gathering, discussing it in small groups, dwelling upon the sacred text of the scripture, and preparing one's offering for the next Sunday. There's food and drink served here, the same food and drink that has been served for as long as anyone can remember. For some here in the congregation, it took a lot of effort to come, whether logistically or emotionally. For some, it was easy and natural. For some in the congregation, they've been trained up in worship for a long time. For some here in the congregation, we aren't sure what the excitement is really about. We don't feel like the biggest fans. Maybe we feel like fair weather fans, as they say, coming around and getting excited when it suits us or when the church is, quote, doing well. For some in the congregation, we don't understand a lot of what goes on in worship because we aren't really formed in worship. Why is it so easy to become a cheering, loving, adoring fan of so many things like the mystics or the gnats or gyms or fashion or parties or career and not feel the same enthusiasm about the arena of Christian worship? To spin it a different way, imagine by contrast if when the clock had finally run down on the fourth quarter of the Mystics game against the Sun for the national championship, that the crowd surrounding the event were just looking at their phones, waiting for the time to pass, and when the clock got down to zero, they didn't get excited. They just left. They didn't talk about it again. They had other things to do. You would say that those people are not really fans. They haven't been formed as lovers of the Mystics. If the things that the church proclaims in worship really did happen, if Jesus did really come and win and save us and is remaking our whole entire world, why is it so hard to find the same enthusiasm in our life for the church and for worship that we do about other things? Like, you might say, just as uh, with baseball, maybe you don't appreciate baseball. Maybe you generally don't care about baseball. Maybe you don't understand baseball. Maybe you've got so much stuff going on in your life that no one has time to care about baseball. And maybe it's the same with worship. You don't appreciate it. You don't understand it. And you've got too much stuff going on to attend to it. We often fail to realize that all of what we do in life, every second of our days is training us in the arena of adoration. Or worship, which comes from a word meaning worship, something towards you to which you ascribe worth and meaning and worth dedicating time and energy to in your life. 
Whether it's the Nationals or the Mystics or the United States of America or the Republican or Democratic Party, whether, as in our passage today, it is sexual pleasure or greed to acquire more stuff or the success of your career, you are being trained to be a lover of something. Christian worship is the arena in which we are to be trained to learn how to love the God who made us, to return to what is supposed to be our first love and to be trained in how to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Worship is about participating in the work that God is doing in us and in our world. It's about having something done to us before our eyes and in our body, just as the call to worship, as we said today, was not about our fundamentally first, about our expression of worship to God, but about God's welcome to us. Jamie Smith says, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts reforms our desires and rehabituates our love. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God something, does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Worship is not about what you know. It is about what you love. No one tells a diehard mystics fan how to become a diehard fan. They don't give them a 10-step process. The fact is, a mystics fan has been trained over a long period of time by dedicating time and hours and practices and meditation to become the diehard fan they are through the formative practices of worship. I say all of this because worship, the communal worship of the church, is the answer in our passage of Ephesians 5 through 1 through 21. Perhaps it's the answer to the whole section of Ephesians 4 and 5, but it lies a little bit under the surface. It comes right at the end, though, as the solution to the problem of how are the Ephesians going to walk out what has been said? How are they going to learn how to live and walk as followers of the way of Jesus? It is in the context of worship. And we have to remember that the letter to the Ephesians itself was, was read when? It was read to the Ephesians most likely in the context of gathered worship when they were together. Christian life begins and continues in worship where we engage and participate together in telling and retelling the drama of God's redemption. If you've been following Jesus for a lifetime, it began in worship. If you've been following Jesus for a year, it began here in worship. The worship of the church in word and sacrament and prayer throughout the Christian year is the primary means that the Spirit uses to fill and transform the people of God. And that's why worship matters. That's why patterning life around worship in the time of the church matters because this is the culminating event that forms the worshipers of God. I want to focus today on the worship of the church by looking at the end, the last uh, section of the, the chapter today, and I'll make reference to what come, has come before, of course, but I want to look at worship, coming in to worship and being filled in worship, coming in to worship and being filled in worship, starting at verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. How did early Christians worship and celebrate Sunday? 
Well, we don't know everything, but we know that they had music, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as the scripture says here. We know that they ate the Lord's Supper. We know that they baptized people. We know that they prayed and read scripture and had a sermon. I like to think that they got a little bit loud when they sang and chanted their songs with some energy. Pliny the Younger was a Roman historian living around the year 111, and he said the Christians would get up before sunrise and start singing responsively, call and response songs and hymns to Jesus, praising him like he was some god or something. How did Pliny know? I like to think they used to wake him up singing so early in the morning that he knew the church was worshiping because they woke him up. In verse 14 of the passage, Paul probably quotes a song that the church liked to sing in order to praise Jesus, in order to make a point he's been trying to make. The song simply goes, Wake up, O sleeper, get up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I like to think that this was one of the songs that the church would use first thing in the morning to literally say, Wake up. (laughs) Wake up. Maybe it was the song that they used when they gathered. The first half of Ephesians 5 is about coming into the light out of darkness. The whole chapter, as you probably heard, is all about light and darkness. It says in verses 8 and 9, In one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. As I said, Ephesians 4 and chapter 5, which Ephesians 4, which Cyril preached so well last week, is, is how to live together as a community and live out the hours and minutes and seconds from Sunday to Saturday. Jesus is not just interested in their Sundays. He's not asking them to come to the game and then walk away like nothing happens on Sunday. It is all supposed to be represented and ripple out into their life as a big old splash that splashes over everything. And so this is a call to the Ephesians to wake up, realize that there are ways of life and patterns of living that are not neutral, but that are destructive and forming them to be fans of something besides the kingdom. Patterns that are destructive. And in chapter 4 and 5, we've seen these kind of patterns of life. Lying, anger and rage, stealing, corrupting talk, malice, bitterness, unforgiveness, sexual immorality, greed, and the desire to exploit another's body. In summary, Paul calls all of this idolatry. False worship is what that word really comes from. So this is a call for the Ephesians to wake up because... Though there are other forms of life that promise life and abundant, their promises are empty. See, for the Ephesians in Ephesus, sex was closely linked with spirituality. For sex was a big part of pagan religion and pagan temples. It's essentially the same today, though we might not have official pagan temples. Sex as seen is seen as a way for spiritual fulfillment in life. So Paul says, wake up. Because the way you view the world, Ephesians, is not necessarily the way Jesus views it. What you think is cool is quite possibly not cool with Jesus, which is a simple but radically countercultural message even today. And just because somebody told you, as long as you live this way, you're good with God, doesn't mean that that's actually the truth. And so Paul says, wake up. It doesn't mean, of course, that Christians, those who are in Christ, don't have anger and sexual immorality and greed in their life. But what Paul is saying is those who are so habituated in those things that it defines their life. A Christian is not supposed to be habituated or to be a fan of those things, patterning life around those things. 
They're not supposed to root for those teams anymore, is what Paul says. And it's a warning. And he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes. To wake up to the reality of the worship of Jesus is to wake up to the emptiness of the words of the world. The emptiness of the words of other people. Of the promises of other things that desire your ultimate affection and love. It's to see darkness as darkness. To see light as light. And to see emptiness where there's emptiness and not call it fullness. But I think many of us are out of touch with this and we don't feel the sense of urgency of worship that Paul is talking about because we, we really don't think, quote, the days are evil, even though we naturally know that they are. The sinfulness and brokenness of our relationships, racism, poverty, the internet, human trafficking, sexual abuse, the brokenness of our politics, help us, Lord Jesus, Woo. I knew moving to Washington, D.C. would be interesting, but having election year and an impeachment inquiry year at the same time, God have mercy. The brokenness of our economics, of our sexuality. We pretend that times are not desperate. We, we put a glossy veneer over the problems of our lives, and therefore we often pretend to worship. We pretend to come into the light because we hide the reality of our lives and the rea- reality of our world from each other and from the Lord, as if we could hide. There's this quote here, and this is the money quote of the day. I promise you. This quote has been sticking with me all week from Brennan Manning when he says, At Sunday worship, as in every dimension of our existence, many of us pretend to believe that we are sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend that we have been forgiven. And as a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. Oh, I'm going to say that again. At Sunday worship, as in every dimension of our existence, many of us pretend to believe that we are sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend we have been forgiven. And as a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. And I would add add that it is pseudo-worship. I pretended for more than half of my life, the majority of my life, I pretended to worship. It wasn't until later in life when I had to sit in darkness long enough, when I had to reach the end of myself, trying to find life abundant through substances and through people that I could finally understand what the light was and what all the excitement was really about. What all the excitement of the gospel is really about will not be exciting to you until you tell the truth about the darkness of yourself in the world. But the call to worship for the church is for us to bring our whole selves to God, to bring our whole selves into the light. Alan Hirsch says, worship is offering your whole world back to God. And if it's not that, then you have domesticated God. And so worship becomes a polite social gathering offering pseudo praise to a domesticated God. That's the kind of worship that I grew up with in the society I grew up with. People didn't tell the truth about themselves and about their life. And therefore, their their worship was polite. It was social. It was a good time to connect. But it was pseudo praise of a domesticated God. Many of us prefer going to the other loves in our life. Want to know what that is in your life? Well, then what thrills you? What really gets you going? What comforts you when you're sad? What do you spend your money on? Is there something you find infinitely more interesting and compelling and enjoyable than Jesus and his church? I'm not saying we can't love other things in life. I can't say, I'm not saying that God doesn't give us gifts to delight in as a giver. 
But what is your first love? What gets your worship for real? And I start here in a sermon on worship because this is where the text starts. When you start to talk about worship, you have to talk about what it means to come into worship and not just play the part. To expose yourself to the light of the love of Jesus and stop pretending and stop hiding. And the wonderful news of the hymn that Paul quotes, one of his favorite songs, I guess, is wake up, O sleeper, rise up from the dead and what? Christ will shine on you. A light will come. It will expose you, yes. But that's not bad news to be exposed. What is bad news is constantly living in a place of deception and darkness and pretend like there is a light in your life. The call to worship is a call to come into the light, to be honest about your life, to remember the light that has shined upon you and to open up more and more of your heart to the light of Jesus. And what the text says is, as we expose ourselves to the light, we become light. As we expose ourselves to the glory of God, we become more and more reflectors of that glory. The call to come into worship is the call to open yourself up. I like what Yusufu Turaki, the Nigerian theologian, says when he says, this hymn that Paul quotes may, it, may have been sung when the Ephesians believers were first baptized. And if so, Paul is reminding them that at their baptism, they turned their back on the world and all of its darkness and desires and attractions, and they embrace Christ who now shines on them. The call to come into, you know, for a long time in Christian worship and historic Christian architecture, the first thing that you would hit when you come into the worship was the baptismal font with the, the pool of baptism. And it was supposed to remind the Christian when he or she came in that I am one who is baptized. I am one upon whom the light has shone. Christians are to be people that live with lives that are open books. What you see is what you get. And I find that my heart and many people's heart do not truly come into worship because you're holding back much of who you are from the light of Jesus and from the family of faith. We can hide things for years. We can come into worship but not come into worship. You know what I'm saying? How do you move towards openness with Jesus is that you open yourself up to the body, his church. If you're not going to let yourself be made known by others in your community, you're not going to experience being known by the Lord. Because the church is the body of Jesus. And if you can't make yourself known to the body, you won't be made known to the Lord. That's what the scripture teaches. And I know many of you are doing this because I hear the stories. I hear the stories from your small groups and from your friendships and community that you are making yourself known to the light and that light is shining. But the call is a progressive and a continual one, though. Come into the light and become light. How do you come into worship? You bring yourself, your body, your heart, your loves, you bring it into the presence of God with his people to praise, to be forgiven, to be transformed, to be nourished, and to be filled. That's what I want to look at second. Being filled in worship. Don't get drunk with wine, <laughs> for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. See, what fills you is what forms you. Let me say that again. What fills you is what forms you and controls you. Whether that is your rituals of eating or drinking, 
whether that's what you do on Sunday morning or Tuesday evening, the things that fill your life, the content of your life shapes your life. Anne Lamott has this quote that I come back to over and over again, where she says, of course, you know, the way we spend our days is the way that we live our lives. The way we spend our days is the way we live our lives. We can often think and rationalize that we are living a certain kind of life. But the truth of whether we are or not comes in the moments of our days. We can often think that the life of faith is knowing the right things as if we could get them right on a quiz. And that's partially true, but not if you think of knowledge as filling in the bubbles on a quiz. Knowledge, what do you actually know, is what you do. If you say, I love the poor, and I believe in economic justice, but when the poor person comes into your life, you refuse to open up your life and your home and your wallet to them, it proves what you actually know and love and have been trained in is to love your home, your safety, your money, and your comfort more than you love the poor. Is that not true, people of God? It is in the everyday interactions and moments of intersection in our life that we realize what we actually know and believe and love. In Ephesus, as in Washington, D.C., being filled with wine, or any other kind of libation, had its different uses. But it was a very common thing in the religious world of the time to get drunk and to engage in all sorts of activities at the pagan temples of the day. The text is not telling the Ephesians to refrain from drinking alcohol, okay? I'm just, I feel like I might need to make that clear for some. Some have interpreted that way, and some need to refrain from alcohol, and that's a great thing. That's a fine thing. The Lord blesses refraining from alcohol, all right? You might need to refrain. But if it meant that, it would contradict other parts of scriptures, namely my favorite from Psalm 104, that God gives wine to gladden the hearts of men and women. Psalm 104.15, that's in the Bible, okay? But alcohol, if I remember right, alcohol in its excess can be destructive, It has destructive tendencies for us as humans, and it's not good for us from any standard of measurement, medically, psychologically, experientially. And that's why Paul uses the word debauchery here, which is another Greek word that can just mean reckless. You don't have control over your life. You're literally being controlled by a substance. Just like earlier in the chapter in Ephesians 5, Paul talked about sex controlling and directing your life and your loves, and your decisions, and your time. Here he talks about substance, controlling and directing your life, influencing your decisions, and how you spend your time. We're surrounded by by many people that that are dominated by that, by either the power of sexuality or the power of substances. And what is the answer to all of this, all of this stuff in Ephesians 4 and 5? Really, as I said earlier, the answer to the whole conversation of this where Paul goes as a solution to all the problems and all the prescriptions that he's given is this. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Pleruste in numati. I want to look at four things about that phrase. Four things. First, the phrase is a command. It's not optional. See, because your life will be filled up with something. And the command here is to let the content and the power of your life be driven and filled by the Holy Spirit of God. I like how Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message. He says, don't drink too much wine. 
Drink the spirit of God. Huge giraffes of him. (laughs) See, because worship is a command. Worship does not arise out of our feelings for God. One of my favorite quotes in life, another Eugene Peterson quote, where he says, very often we don't feel like worshiping. And so we say, it would be dishonest for me to go into the place of worship and praise God when I don't feel like it. I would be a hypocrite. But you see, worship is a command from God. I put great emphasis on the fact that Christians worship because they want to, not because they're forced to. But I've never said that we worship because we feel like it. Because feelings are great liars. If Christians only worshiped when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship that actually went on in the world. Feelings are important in many areas, but unreliable in matters of faith. But we live in what one writer has called an age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. Namely, listen to this people of God, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Let me say that again. You can act yourself into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act which develops feelings for God, not fundamentally a feeling for God, which is an expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God and with one another is nurtured. To engage with the practices of the church and word and sacraments and prayer are acts which develop feelings for God. Secondly, be filled with the Spirit is in plural form. You can't be filled with the Spirit alone. Y'all have to be filled with the Spirit is what Paul says. Y'all be filled. You don't worship alone. You don't get the Spirit alone. You need the community of the people of God with you in worship to transform your life in worship. Thirdly, this verb is a passive verb. It is something that, it do, that is done to you, not something you do. It doesn't say fill yourself with the Spirit. Because there are no techniques to learn and no formula to recite to receive the Spirit of God. It is significant that in the parallel passage in the book of Colossians, when Paul says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, because you can't separate the spirit of God from the word of God. To obey the word of God, to hear the word of God, to meditate upon the word of God is to surrender to the spirit of God. They are identical in the scriptures because the spirit inspires the word and gives the word to the church. Scripture is the Holy Spirit's word. The command to be filled with the spirit is to be filled with the word of God together with your brothers and sisters. Christian worship throughout the Christian year, the flow of our worship here at Grace Mosaic and really the flow of Christian worship across the world tells a single story through the scripture. And I like to say that the story is in five C's called, cleansed, consecrated, communing, and commissioned. Called, God made us to love and praise Him. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you are called to worship God as a creature. Cleansed, God washes us by His grace from our sins, freely forgiven to freely forgive. Given peace to become peacemakers. Consecrated, God sets apart a new holy people through baptism, through scripture, through prayer. Communing, Jesus feeds the people at the table with His body and blood. 
and commission, God sends us out into the world and his spirit to transform the world that the kingdom may come on earth. That is the story that we tell in Christian worship throughout the Christian year from Advent to Pentecost to ordinary time. And it's that story that is to be embedded into your life. To every day, wake up as one who is called. Every day, wake up as one who has been cleansed and can be cleansed again. Wake up as one who has been set apart through baptism. Wake up as one who God communes with, who gives our daily bread. And wake up as one who is sent on mission with Jesus. And it's engaging in that story of worship, being filled with that content year after year begins to transform our lives. It begins to transform our loves. See, American Christianity always wants the fireworks of spirituality. They want the mountaintop and and the peaks of the moments. But actually, here's the truth, people of God. It's the regular, mundane, and ordinary rhythms of your life, week after week, year after year, that gets the story into your bones. It's not the deep fryer of spirituality. It's more like a crock pot. Low and slow. Low and slow. It's the choices of how we spend time together as a community. How you spend time in your house. The rhythms and rituals you put in place. That's why Christians are not to neglect worship. Because it's to spill out into our, our lives like a big old splash. And fourth, the last thing as I close... Be filled with the Spirit is a present and progressive verb. It means continue to be filled with the Spirit. How do you do that? As I said, the answer to this passage, corporate worship. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Giving thanks. Praying with one another. Giving thanks. Addressing one another. Worship is participatory. It's responsive. It's communal. We sing towards God, but in this passage, it says address one another. It's a mysterious reality that when we praise in community, we are actually enriching the faith of each other. When I preach and you, uh, by God's grace, give me some amens or some talk back, that is you ministering to me. You're hearing the word and you're saying, yes, I believe that that is true. When you sing responsively, call and response, you are agreeing with one another. Yes, I will sing praises unto my God. I will sing praises unto my God. We minister to one another in the context of worship. This is not a performance of me uh, uh, doing my song and dance for you. It is us rejoicing in the work of God together. It is His stage, and we are the congregation surrounding the stage, watching what He has done in the victory of Jesus and rejoicing over that victory together, even though we didn't have anything to do with the victory. We are like the Nationals fans that come to the game, we aren't on the field, and that we couldn't be on the field. We couldn't even make it on the field. I think about that as I've been watching baseball a lot recently, because I'm a Fairweather fan, I only watch in the playoffs, um, that when those pitches come at 98 miles an hour, we couldn't hit that thing. We couldn't even watch that thing. It would fly by us. We can't save ourselves either. Jesus is the home run hitter. Jesus is the MVP, the most valuable player, the priceless one, the redeemer. And we rejoice in the work that he has done on our behalf, fulfilling the will of the Father and sending the Spirit for us. Lastly, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not counting yourselves as more important than each other. Placing yourselves underneath one another. Humbling yourselves before one another. How do, you do, how do you learn to do all this? 
Well, the key is in the first two verses of the passage where it says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering. Do you want to learn how to live and worship as a Christian? Christian means little Christ. Look at Jesus. Look at the one who, though he was high and holy, made himself meek and lowly. The one who submitted to us to save us. And we are called to submit to one another and humble ourselves to be imitators of Jesus. To not have to have all the answers ourselves, but like children, be like the son was with the father, rejoicing in the will of the father. So people of God, be filled with the spirit in worship. Be filled with the gospel, and let's be filled together now at the table, where Paul says, as we commune together, we, we drink of one spirit, is what the apostle says, and that's what we gather to do here. Amen? Let's be filled. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.